Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we'll be talking about monstrosity. So I think maybe a useful starting point in our conversation about monstrosity would be to talk about the language of monstrosity and the type of words that we use when we're talking about monsters or the other. Yeah, I think that, you know, there are a couple ways to think about monsters. One is like historically, where have we found monsters in popular culture? Those have usually been physical monsters pretty much up until the 20th century where they became more existential, where monstrosity was something that was part of a character defect inside the self. And so I think that there are two ways that monstrosity gets deployed. One is in this, you know, externalized physical repulsion that carries with it fright and fear. And um, the other is in the monster that's inside, which is sort of the existential part of the human condition. And that, I think, is about sort of the complexity of human emotions. And I also think it's about the hard spots to negotiate among people, especially as it pertains to difference. So I think monstrosity language, the grotesque, the fear, sometimes shame, um, often violence, all of those languages are marshaled at difference, really. What do you think, Laura? It's interesting that these historical representations of monsters, these creations like vampires and zombies and cyborgs and witches, these come from a fear of other people or a fear of differences or a fear of things that might be aberrant in your own mind or body. It's interesting that we created characters and things that were like scary out of those differences. And I'm kind of interested in, in how that happened and how we use those words now to or like those types of characters now to talk about ourselves yeah. and other people. Yeah. I mean, I really think that mon- monsters function to point out the boundaries of what is socially conceived of to be normal, even though we all know that normal is a myth and normal is a lie and there is no real category, stable category called normal. Monsters exist to point out what is not normal, what, especially in times of extreme social anxiety. So for example... There are cultural studies kinds of academics who chart, say, economic decline and the rise of certain monster forms. So Jack Halberstam has written about vampires and fears of anti-Semiticism in, you know, old Europe and about how the vampire had come to symbolize the financially astute Jew. And so all of these ethnic anxieties were projected onto vampires as a way of talking about capital. And other writers have written about zombies. We're in a zombie moment right now. And that's not surprising because the Bush administration basically destroyed the economy so, so profoundly that the rich poor gap increased so much. The wage gap increased, you know, 
So people are having a ton of anxiety about what it means to be a slave to capital when the capital has shrank so much that it's not actually covering all of the costs of daily life. So they feel husked out and empty and soulless and that they're surrounded by other people who have become slaves to a kind of lifestyle that people on a very fundamental level disagree with. And you see that politically too. It's like the reason that there's such a strong libertarian streak in some of the discourse right now is because people are fundamentally dissatisfied with the boundaries between the self and other and self and capital. And I think that that is where the monster resides in the contemporary imaginary. But it's hard because there's, you know, the monstrosity there is emerging as a result of large social forces like capital and, you know, economic forces that are outside of people's individual control. And then there's also the monster in the self patrolling the boundaries of the normal, right? And so right now, in this moment where we're recording, we're having this huge conversation because Target is creating, you know, they're saying that their bathrooms are gender neutral. And so there's all of this anti-trans sex panic, which is constantly mobilized around quote-unquote sexual deviance or body deviance. And so what's happening is that, you know, trans people are becoming the, the boogeymen, the monsters in this narrative about safe spaces to shop, which is entirely about anxiety about capital and about who controls the space inside of the shopping center or the mall or the store. I feel like there's the monster, you know, as represented by these social forces beyond our control. And then there's the self as monster, whether it's inside ourselves or projected onto others. And I think that they both function together to create the language of deviance, um, which, of course, is not scientific, but is a product of social, you know, forces. The current conversation about, you know, trans rights is interesting too in the context of this conversation because a lot of you know the monstrosity narratives come from like alternative ways of looking and being yeah being kind of erased and like attributed to something that's like scary or non-human or alien now that those alternative ways of looking and living and being are more widely accessible and now part of the normal conversation about gender and sexuality, it's interesting to see the backlash against it now still, even though, well, I, I guess it's just like that fear is continuing to perpetuate because those things were associated with, you know, like the non-normative things were associated with monsters for so long and then yeah. that it continues to like be a part of people's perceptions because the fantasy of the normal is so strong. It's so propagandized, you know, that a family is a man and a woman kids. And I mean, there's no data that bears that out. Most of the quote unquote families in America are single headed families with one woman only because they don't count non-normative kinds of families. So two women in a household still counts as a single headed single family household, you know, with one, one female parent as the head of the household. It just seems to me that monstrosity language right now is being mobilized because the normal is being unmasked as a lie. And so I think that it, it makes sense that there are spaces to embrace the monster as a performative rejection of the normal 
as a progressive sort of intellectual space. And so I have been thinking a lot about how, especially within feminist discourse, masculinity is constantly described as monstrous. And I am just so appalled by the misandry among some feminists, the man-hating and just the lack of generosity, you know, about understanding how masculinity is constructed by, by intellectuals who really should know better, that I think creating a giant boogeyman out of patriarchy is actually becoming extremely difficult in creating the kind of intimacy that propels relationships to be transformative. So for me, I am really right now, I think, extremely critical of narratives that sort of define patriarchy as all men producing it in the same way, especially without any real consideration of the way in which race and gender and class influence the way that masculinity is produced in different geographic or physical locations or bodies. And right now, for me, I'm, I'm really, really resistant to thinking about masculinity as a constant monstrosity, even though I understand where it comes from. I mean, it comes from spaces of social vulnerability and violence and etc. But I am of the opinion that at this point, the patriarchy is not is no longer a very useful sharp tool for helping build transformative relationships with other people. And in the same way, I've been thinking a lot about femininity and the way that it gets projected as monstrous. I mean, of course, I'm interested in reproductive justice. I do lots of work in that movement. And I'm really struck by how frequently women are depicted as the monsters for accessing healthcare, especially around um, pregnancy or fetuses. And about how the feminine itself is understood as monstrous in a culture that really harnesses women's underpaid, undervalued labor. So I've been thinking a lot about how language of excess women are too emotional they're too they're too much you know they take up too much space they say too many words they do all of the wrong things in such grand ways that kind of depiction of femininity is also about making women as an essential category monstrous so those are two of the sort of ways in which i've been thinking about gender you know in addition to trans bathrooms as a space of monstrosity that sort of are helping me think about the language of monstrosity right now. What do you think about masculinity and femininity in the ways that they get mobilized as sort of static spaces of normalization and monstrosity? The way that the narratives about masculinity and femininity exist are in opposition to difference, in opposition to other types of sexualities and other types of genders that have, you know, like been characterized as monsters in the past. I'm really interested now, though, because I think the language of monstrosity is being co-opted by, like, Mm -hmm. artists and musicians. I know, like, David Bowie was in Prince. Now, both of them played a lot with gender boundaries and... Excess. For sure, excess. And their appearances and, I mean, the fluidity of their expression, both artistically and sexually monstrosity is becoming a way embodying different like types of monstrosity ugliness and (laughs) witchiness those things are being used now to overcome the boundaries and binaries that exist between male and female and masculine and feminine that drive this like 
uh, crushing system that you were talking about. It's tyranny. <laughs> yeah. And now women are co-opting witchiness to express their sexuality. That's a really interesting way to play with gender. You know, like, I see that happening a lot now. It's, it's not happening across the board because it, a lot of representations of monstrosity reinforce, like, heteronormative, yes. destructive <clears throat> gender roles. Rock I'm and thinking. roll. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking yeah. for all of rock and roll. All yeah. of the hair bands, all mm-hmm. of the Guns N' Roses, all of the Zeppelin. Right. Excessive hyper-masculinity and whiteness. There are people who used monstrosity as a challenge, and then obviously the culture co-opted, <laughs> re-co-opted it back to reinforce yeah. the gender boundaries that the original artists were trying to erase. I mean, I'm thinking of Gaga and Kanye a lot. I mean, I saw Gaga do a show at the Fox Theater in St. Louis a quite a few six years ago now and it was interesting watching her talk about her little monsters and watching how she sort of mobilized monstrosity as a point of identification especially around the confluence of race and gender which I think for a white female performer is interesting only because monstrosity I think is a relatively new place for women to occupy so centrally as a strategy of reversal popular culture that way um and I'm, I've been thinking about how Kanye occupies the space of the monster and about I like Kanye best when he's pointing out the monstrosity of white political power so my I mean my easily my favorite Kanye mo- moment is him at the telethon for Katrina saying George Bush hates black people because it's sort of the ultimate moment of unmasking white supremacy and saying the thing that needs to be said in such a way that is unavoidable. And of course, you know, then the strategy is to depict him as the monster. And so I feel like Kanye often occupies the space where he is taking up the call to point out actual political monstrosity when it happens, like excessive use of white supremacist power to destroy communities. And then I, I think he also plays with the, what it means to be a black man who harnesses capital, which in the white imaginary is monstrous. I think he plays with that as a black man, which is very interesting to me. I think Prince did the same thing, and we're recording this just a few days after Prince's death, and I've been really meditating in that space about how it is that Prince became like this icon around the world, and this public mourning of him is so different than Bowie or... Michael Jackson, and the fact that he was so gender-queered and took up monstrous space. How does Prince become the artistic mobility of monstrosity in productive ways? This little, shy, Midwestern black kid at 17, 18, 19 propels himself through tremendous talent but also occupying this extremely liminal space, this third way, this, you know, unqualified, inarticulate, articulate space of the weird. And he becomes <laughs> valorized around the world for it. Like, who else do you know has been able to command this kind of public mourning and be so weird? It's incredible to me. It's right. it's a landmark, actually. <laughs> I think both of those figures are interesting. Interesting. Kanye is interesting to me because he uses 
the language of monstrosity in two ways. Uh, his song Monster, monster. specifically <laughs> is about success. And he's saying, Capital. I'm a monster of a success. And it's, it's interesting to me that he uses that, that language because, you know, a lot of the way we talk about success is violent. If you say that you crushed it or yeah. I killed it, Smashed there's like it. a lot of violent language that mm-hmm. we use now to talk about success. Right. And, and that song also recognizes that in order to become the monster of a success that he is, he's had to be a bad person to do it. So it's like there are two sides of that. I'm really successful and also, a lot of people had to lose for me to win. So he uses that language of winning and crushing the opposition or the losers. And that's interesting to me. But also, he, he does this thing that's interesting to me where he, like, revels in being a bad person. Like, uh-huh. he knows he's a bad person and he revels in it. And he gets a lot of slack for it as a black man. And a lot of white men have done a similar thing. The wolf like less- of Wall Street. <laughs> yeah. Wall Street. I mean, I, I, American Psycho. Right. Dexter. I mean, the whole, all of white male art is about reveling in white monstrosity in its relation to capital. And Kanye, is, he's brazenly um, embodying all of these qualities yeah. about being entitled. Um, talking about his talent being Talking arrogant. about his talent being yeah. arrogant. He criticizes, I think heteronormative white men for doing that. And he's doing it as a black man. And he's using like the language of religion and totally like he uses the language of all these oppressive structures and co-ops them. And I think that's really interesting. And I mean, he allows himself to be an asshole. I think it's a, I think it's a character. And I think also he feels entitled to do that because those are the rules of engagement with capital. Right. So that's really interesting. Prince is like, he uses monstrosity in a very different way. Such a different persona. Totally yeah. different public persona. His projection of monstrosity is more about like the nuance of the other and boundaries. He was playing more with boundaries and Kanye was playing more with the monstrosity of the self. Another thing that's been really uh, prevalent in popular culture is anti-hero centric stories. And so there are all these anti-heroes of different ilks. Oh, yeah. Breaking from, Bad. <laughs> yeah. Breaking Bad, of course. But even Mad Men, you know, Don Draper is an anti-hero in totally. a lot of ways. Um that's a really interesting analysis of the anti-hero. What's interesting to me is, as a viewer and as a reader, and a lot of these representations of the anti-hero, like you as a reader or a viewer are comfortable with the thing that is making the character a bad person outwardly. So like in the case of Breaking Bad, you don't actually think that Walter White making meth is a bad thing because his reasons for doing it are valid and like in the case of dexter when you're watching that show you are comfortable with the fact that he kills people because he's found a way to do it that (laughs) you know like the reason that he's an anti-hero isn't because he's 
a serial killer. And the reason that Walter White in Breaking Bad is an anti-hero isn't because he makes meth. It's because they're selfish. Like, that's what the anti-hero narratives have become about. The bad qualities of you as a human, like power-seeking and narcissism and lack of empathy, those are the things that actually end up making those characters anti-heroes. Even though that outwardly they're criminals. Yeah. (laughs) But it's not the fact that they're criminals that makes them bad. No. All of these human characteristics are monstrous. But that's because we're having a different moment. We're having a different kind of political conversation in America among the intelligentsia, and that is two-pronged. One is about the limits of masculinity and its inability to positively shape culture because it's been used for so long as a tool of systemic violence. And the other is about how capital has been the handmaiden of you know masculinity. And in this moment where wealth is being restructured so tremendously, it makes sense that criminality is a space to rethink what monstrosity is. I think we are going through a moment where there's a serious reevaluation among some about the way in which masculinity and capital have colluded to produce um, an unsustainable way of building culture. And so, you know, I think that that's one reason why white dudes in particular are drawn to anti-hero narratives, because in the same way that I am sort of intolerant of the misandrist vein of a lot of contemporary feminist discourse, I think that men want outs. They want out of the trap of masculinity in the ways that it is encoded in their racial and class and geographic location and their spaces. And those complicated anti-heroes provide um, representational spaces to excavate the limits of masculinity and the pr- productive monstrosity within themselves. That's very good, I think, for collective consciousness to wrestle relationships among masculinity and monstrosity and capital. I think that's mostly good. Now, I couldn't stand Breaking Bad and I couldn't sit through two episodes of it. I found it I mean, I just found it repulsive. I, I'm not, I was not interested in that. I was interested in Mad Men more because there are so many versions of the female personas of excess and um, adaptation there that, you know, collaborated and also undermined the project of excavating masculinity that for me, Mad Men was a much richer, smarter, but it was also targeted towards my people, you know, sort of intellectuals Mm. who think about these things. And so I felt like it had more value because it had more of a range of excavations for how, you know, gender and sexuality are part of monstrosity, about how masculinity and femininity as sort of static genderal expectations deform people and actually are what create the monsters. That's why this dynamic between Kanye and Prince is interesting to me because Kanye is like a deformed, is deformed by masculinity yeah. and patriarchy and capitalism. And that's made him a monster. And Prince is embodying the liberation that, yeah. you, can, that you can achieve when gender boundaries become fluid. When you reimagine bodies. I'm interested in like representations of difference and like ugliness or beauty that are not normal as ways to like combat heteronormativity and patriarchy. I wonder if there's space to think about how we can live in society as it is now or create a utopia or like transformative change using this language or the cultures around monstrosity. 
I've been thinking a lot about this around how much more fluid the gender sex boundary is than the race boundary and thinking through, you know, how much intellectual production and physical production and, you know, political production has surrounded breaking down gender and sex binaries with bodies. But I've been thinking a lot about how much further we have to go about race. And one reason is because race is marked so differently than gender and sexuality and has a different kind of history, obviously, because of slavery in the U.S. And when I mean race, I mostly mean blackness, because blackness is the vector through which most race discourse in America is filtered, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, depending on your politics. You know, I think that the interesting thing for me isn't thinking through what does it mean to give up race? Because the conversation right now is about how post-racialness is terrible. And of course it is because it denies that race has a material reality and that people who are raced in certain ways have different levels of access to capital and sovereignty and, you know, autonomy. And that's a real thing. But if we look at other ways of excavating normal and monstrous the way to undo that is to blur those boundaries. So I was thinking a lot this week about Rachel Dozel and why people are so upset about her quote-unquote passing as black and what does her case tell us about the role of social identification and passing and race. And a friend of mine and I were having this conversation earlier this week and he said, you know, America as a place is just not ready to have those conversations about racism and monstrosity. And I was talking about the level of attachment that people still have to race as an, as, as an identity politics, as a way of commodifying their identity and making money off of it. And he may be right that we're not in that moment yet, but I certainly think that there is um, a tremendous amount of value to be discussed in thinking through what it means to to not transcend race, to, but to be able to productively blur its boundaries in a way that creates liberatory possibility. I don't know. I, I think that there are plenty of examples where we could do that kind of work, but I don't know if people are ready or willing to do that because of the way that capital has arranged their bodies. Like how how much does capital just reanimate the machinery of race in a way that makes it very, very difficult to do the work of erasing the normal. On the other hand, this is a moment where I sort of think we're in the death throes of white masculinity, where white men are coming to terms with the fact that their level of power and privilege is in decline, not just because of the demographic browning of America, but because there is a value shift around what it means to be white and what it means to be quote-unquote not white. And I think that there is a tremendous opportunity here now to think through what it means to deprivilege the kinds of race talk that has characterized modernity and invent new ways of thinking through formerly racialized bodies of different pigmentations and histories. But that's going to be a massive collective project and a lot of people need to get on board to do that kind of imaginary work, you know? There's a lot of work to be done because so much of the way we talk about bodies and the way we talk about everything in our world is about categorization and it totally characterizes public education your entire education being criticized for being different or aberrant even the prejudices that enter into the classroom that aren't like ex said expressly but are definitely noticed by everyone in the room yeah those kinds of things are really damaging and 
Like, I don't know how it's possible to massively restructure the way that prejudices play out in microaggressions. Or shit, macroaggressions. We're talking about, you know, police killing black kids. We're talking about the school-to-prison pipeline. I mean, Mm -hmm. they're not just interpersonal slights of hand. They are massive structures that determine the fate of millions of people that are actively eroding their Mm -hmm. possibility to be fully human. I mean, so it's, (laughs) you're right. That's a, that's a... (laughs) Well, the thing about it is there's, like, layers on layers on layers of prejudice that are, I mean, they're just piling on. That's why the capital matters. That's why redistribution of wealth matters. If if poor black people stay poor and black, there's no imaginary project that's going to reassess our values about race. Like, it absolutely has to be about the redistribution of wealth, in my mind. Because if people can't buy their own land and own their own homes and pay the taxes to where they have a voice in their communities, then there's no way for them to participate in the utopian process of reimagining what racial bodies look like. And the only reason, well, not the only reason, but a major reason that it's been more successful around sex and gender is because it's been mostly white people doing that work. And and not to say that there haven't been, you know, queer and trans brown people who are also doing it. But, I mean, certainly gay marriage is the best example. That's mostly a white movement of capital in cities where LGBTQ households have middle-class status and bourgeois power, you know? And so... And voting power. Yeah, they have political power. I mean, so few people know about, like, how disenfranchised, poor, often queer, there's a lot of homeless LGBTQ kids that have no place to go because they're at odds with their parents' beliefs. And there's a lot of black communities that are disenfranchised because of the voter ID laws and even like the process of being registered in the first place, not being able to get off work to vote because you're supporting yourself with several jobs. I don't see how transformation takes place. Unless there's a radical change. And it has to be Politically, too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's because that's the thing is like, you know, I tell my students all the time, you you know, you're taught in school that voting is really important in a democracy. And it is, I guess. But it's much more important to have money. Because with money, then you have social influence. With social influence, you have political representation. And you can't have that with the vote alone. And so for me, it's about how do you get money into you know, poor communities of color so that they can they can mm-hmm. actually influence their representations of self, not just to the others, but to themselves. Well, people who have the power then have to sacrifice it. Oh, yeah. Like, they have to move equality. the needle then if that's... <laughs> if equality is a goal, then people with privilege have to give the privilege up. That is how that works. Otherwise, it's just lip service. It's the thing that liberals do all the time by saying we, we believe in equality. Mm-hmm. Well, but we're not going to fund minimum wage legislation. But I just, <laughs> you know. I don't know. It seems like so distant to me because of how villainized poor people have been yes. in the national rhetoric. And Since that's Reagan. Like they Since have... Reagan. Since Reagan. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I yeah. mean, if, uh, and they still are, you know, like all of the conversations about welfare that white men are having are about stereotypes about who actually receives yeah. Federal support, which is mostly white women and children. And drug testing people who are, you know, like receiving food stamps and welfare. Those communities are being villainized in order to support 
the removal of more social welfare and social support. It's like, these are bad people. Why are we giving them their money? They're not bad people. No. <laughs> You're using rhetoric of monstrosity to perpetuate this system. Because both blackness or brownness and poverty are pathologized. That conflation is particularly ironic in Arkansas since our legislature is mostly white and a lot of the members of our legislature receive, have received federal assistance, whether it's TANF, you know, the temporary assistance for needy families, or whether it's Medicaid or Medicare or whatever. I mean, we have in Arkansas right now, just this week, the governor is supporting legislation that would absolutely erode the TANF program for poor Arkansas families. And I mean, it's a very few number of families who receive temporary assistance for needy families. And if they do, they are crushingly poor. And I'm sorry, but I mean, a democracy is only as strong as its weakest members. And it is the responsibility of a republic to provide for all of its citizens. And I recognize that that is an unpopular opinion among the so-called fiscal conservatives, but that's not really about the money. That's about the whiteness. And we know that because we know how much more money it saves to take care of people, you know, when they are in various states of need. Yeah, uh, free education, free housing, free yeah, crime is free birth control, by paying people a living wage. The data is clear. So it's not about the data. It's not about actual cause and effect. It's not about what's best. It is entirely about the politics of monstrosity, where whiteness is heroized and brownness and poverty are pathologized and villainized and become the monstrous other that must be crushed. It is repulsive and it's grossly unethical. And so, you know, I think about monstrosity really across all of the levels of power. Of course, at the most interpersonal level that happens with the self and others. I think about it uh, at the institutional level, about how monstrosity is perpetuated by institutions um, in thinking through what whiteness looks like at institutional level. And then I think about it at the social level um, of the structures and the way that they are mobilized rhetorically and politically to create political exclusion of whoever is deemed, deemed monstrous in any particular moment. And they're just scapegoats. You know, that's the thing is that the structural level reflects back to the personal. Those monsters function as scapegoats for the fragile ego of the person telling the story. That's how that works. I guess as a critic, I feel like my job is to expose where the scapegoats are being called into play and how that is reinforcing and reproducing the kinds of negative consequences that I think progressive intellectuals want to, to, to support, you know, to create more just communities where more people can participate equally and where capital is redistributed. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayette.